Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. I am your host, John Landis. And tonight, once again, we have an interview from the NYU Jazz Interview Series put together by Dave Schroeder of the Steinhardt School at New York University um, and uh, his various producers who helped put this together. This is a, it's an exemplary series that you jazz lovers out there are learning a lot from. I certainly am and probably uh, greatly enjoying because we've done some, uh, we brought you some excellent interviews and we'll continue to do so. Tonight's interview was Dave Schroeder done with John Schofield back in 2017. John is one of the premier jazz guitarists and has been for decades. He, at this point, is in his late 60s, and he's had uh, several different uh, periods of time that he's worked in various different genres. He's really an outstanding guitar player, and people often put the uh, the big three as Pat Metheny, John Schofield, and Bill Frisell. So this is a real treat that you have in store. Enjoy it. Uh, let's listen to Dave Schroeder of the NYU Interview Series interviewing John Schofield. Welcome, everybody, to the NYU Steinhardt Jazz Interview Series. Today we have a very special guest, one of the main voices, one of the most recognizable voices in jazz for many, many years. How about a warm round of applause for Mr. John Schofield? Thanks, Dave. 
I, I found this statement today. Uh, it's a rare artist that can play more than one style of music with true fluency, virtuosity, and sincerity. And I think you're one of those artists. Don't cry. <laughs> but let's talk about... Uh, in, in fact, um, I was thinking about your long career. You know, if you look at... Uh, your discography, you've played with guys, not, not in, certainly in the years that they were most famous, but you played with people like Jay McShann and uh, Mingus and Miles and... Um, Mulligan. Mulligan and Chet Baker, yeah, right. Um, but you've also played with uh, members, Phil Lesh, members of the Grateful Dead and uh, Medeski Martin and Wood and Uber Jam, your thing. So the breadth of your experience, I think, and I, this came to me this morning, was uh, kind of similar to the crossover that this very famous um, New Orleans type or uh, swing, pre-swing clarinet player, Pee Wee, Pee Wee Russell, had because he was playing in his early years with the, the legends of the, the 20s, Bix Beiderbeck and Frankie Trambauer. But by the late 50s, early 60s, he's playing uh, the music of Monk and Coltrane and Ornette. So I don't know how you're going to respond to this. That really spanned a a huge uh, thing. But for me, uh, you know, I kind of just answered the phone. You know, and and, and I, I... well, not really. I mean, I did hustle up my own work for for sure later on. But in the beginning, you know, I was just like uh, a lot of other people. I started uh, with rock on the guitar, rock and blues, and then got into jazz after I'd played for a couple of years and um, wanted to learn bebop and, and jazz guitar. And uh, then when I got good enough to start to get some professional gigs... Uh, it was the very uh, beginning of fusion uh, music, which was a big thing in the 70s when they blended rock and jazz, you know. And uh, so I got called for, for that work. Um, that's when I was just answering the phone. Even though I wanted to be a, a, a jazz guitar player, um, I just, you know, did what was going on and, and, uh, and got into it. And uh, so I was able to, you know go back to my blues beginning and uh and utilize that in jazz and um and and you know what you said earlier too when i first started in the 70s here in new york uh mingus and miles and mulligan the m's and uh and and monk i never played with monk he's another m but uh those guys were still around you know and dizzy gillespie and uh so it was possible to get to play with those guys uh, if you were here. And uh, then things changed, everything, you know, I became uh, more of a, uh, you know, I was able to get my own gigs later on, and then I started to hire some younger bands, one of them being Modesky, Martin, and Wood, you know, who were from another generation. And, uh, and you know, time marches on. Well, when we talk about... Uh your career as a guitar player. Uh, when we had a discussion with John Abercrombie a few weeks ago, uh, he had said that when he came to New York, there were very few guitar players as compared to today. 
like there's mm-hmm. a sea of guitar players now. Was that the, was that the truth? Uh, same situation when you came to New York. I'm a, a little bit younger than John. I'll have you know, and uh, <laughs> not that it matters, boy, uh, because we're now we're just all old senior citizens, senior statesmen of jazz. But um, so John, I think really was. St- the Beatles changed everything, and, and my generation, I was 12 or 11 when the Beatles came out, and every kid in America, it seems, got a guitar then. And before that, it was not as nearly as popular an instrument, and John was just before that. And my group, you know, I graduated from high school in 1970, uh, guitar was everything, you know. So there were, it seemed like there were a lot of guitar players when I came to New York, but I think... Uh, the other thing is there are a lot more musicians than there were back then. A lot more people that are, are you know, committing themselves to trying to learn music. Well, I know you went to Berkeley for a while, and uh, that certainly probably influenced your, your oh, jazz yeah. process. But um, how did you make that transition from being a student into actually getting gigs and getting recognized? Interesting, because I'm not really sure. Uh, how, how that happened. Um, I think, don't we all feel like students all the time? You know, I mean, that's really the important thing about music is that you stay learning, you know, that you have to always keep trying to learn something. Uh, you can never rest on what you know. Um, so in that way, I don't feel any different. And I don't think any, any of the players do, you know, everybody wants to keep advancing, but, um, I, uh, I think it's really important to be on a scene. So I was—I just took every gig that that came up when I was in Boston, and I met the older players there, the guys that played well, and they would recommend me for stuff. And uh, and I remember, you know, some of the guys in in Boston knew some people in New York. So actually, the way I I kind of got on the scene in New York. Or the very, very first little thing. I mean, I knew a started to meet, you know, the Boston, New York connection is strong. So there are always people coming back and forth. But I met, um, I was going to school with uh, Dave Samuels, the vibraphonist. And his friend was a guy named David Friedman, who was a a vibraphonist here in New York in the big city. And we, um, Dave and I got got a gig with a drummer named Horace Arnold who's here in New York, teaches here. And uh, so I got to come down to the to New York to play with him. And then uh, Billy Cobham, the, the famous drummer, who was a very famous fusion drummer at that time, uh, produced a demo that Horace Arnold made. And then he was looking for a guitar player, and he hired me. So, uh, you know, it's just that being around and available and working cheap... Um, really helps.
You're listening to WLIW in Southampton, New York. That's WLIW.org slash radio on your dial. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour. I'm your host, John Landis. Tonight, you're listening to Dave Schroeder of NYU interviewing John Schofield, noted uh, jazz guitarist with a great career. Well, the, the question is, who would have been the other guitar players that would have been available for those gigs at that time? Um, well, you know, when I went to Berkeley, the other guy who came up to Boston, uh, who was, was really great, was Pat Metheny. And he was uh, a contemporary of mine. John Abercrombie was already playing gigs. John helped me to, to, uh, to, in New York. I met him, and he you know, showed me around a little bit. Um, but he wasn't a contemporary. Pat was an actual contemporary of mine. Um, uh, two other guys that are famous are Mike Stern and Bill Frizzell. And Mike was a little bit younger than me. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like back in, in high school, in, you know, in, when you're in eighth grade, the seventh graders are seem so much younger than you. It was still a little bit like that, you know. Even though Mike is two years younger than me, he had, you know, was, uh, I didn't know him. And, and Frizzell, who's my age, had, I think he had, he didn't come to Berkeley until I had just dropped out, so I I, uh, I didn't really meet him there, you know. But all those guys, we were all going to Berkeley, and you know. was there early friendships, you and Matheny, for instance? No, you don't. No, no, you're at war with those guys. <laughs> you know, at what? No. Yeah. And uh, and that continues to this day. <laughs> I'm jo- I'm joking around. Um, I'll do anything to get uh, a laugh. No, I love those guys. You know, no, I, I love uh, you know the, the those men. You know, Pat and and John Abercrombie and and uh, and and Bill Frizzell, Mike Stern, and I've learned so much about playing the guitar and really become friends with with all those guys and and uh, consider them uh, very very close. There's just something that happens. Uh, when you're both, you know, trying to get it together. And there's a, that friendship of, among musicians, especially somebody who's trying to play your instrument, you know. And a bunch of other guys, guys that have, have I don't know what's happened to them, but people that really played well uh, back when I was in my 20s. You know, some of them have kind of gotten off the scene and you've lost track of them. But uh, you know. Now you're in that same group of artists, Frizzell, Matheny, Abercrombie, where younger students now... Uh, people will say to a young guitarist, man, you sound like Frizzell, or man, you sound like Schofield. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Whew. I'm I'm happy that they, they know what I sound like. Yeah, that means that uh, that I exist. Therefore, I am. No, I, you know, I, the other thing you think is how, why, I, I got to say, I, I immediately think, why would anybody want to sound like me? Because I... I hear the rough edges in my own playing and, and things that I wouldn't want to do. Um, and, uh, and I never think it's really accurate, you know, to say this guy really... Sa-. You know, usually, there's nothing we can do about our own sound, actually. And you hear somebody who's trying to play like somebody else, and, and they're not really getting it together because it's impossible. And... Uh, we take a little from this guy, a little from that guy, for sure. But, but you never end up really being able to clone anybody. 
What happens when you hear somebody playing in your style and they're copying those areas that you don't particularly care for or make yeah. you cringe? Well, that's what I hear usually. Um, somebody playing like this real rough kind of thing and they're like, oh, God, why can't that guy play nice? And, so, and then they go, oh, he sounds like you. And I'm going, oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, not, not, I'm not trying to be falsely modest, but that really is what usually happens. And, uh, uh, yeah. So who did you copy when you were working on it? Well, Dave, you never tell anybody that because it, you want them to think that you invented it all yourself. You mean, who did I steal from? Well, that's more. Um, no, I copied the, all the greats. Um, I, I copied a lot of uh, things from uh, other instruments, you know, from Charlie Parker and, and, and bebop, you know, and trumpet guys like Miles Davis. And uh, in fact, you were teaching a class last semester at NYU and you had everybody learn your favorite Lester Young solo. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, that came from a you know, frustration of how do you actually teach jazz? Um, and then I, I realized that even though I hadn't really learned a, a whole solo, but uh, by anybody ever, but uh, that, that I learned to play by ear in combination with uh, learning music theory. It's a combination of the two, you know. And uh, so then I thought a Lester Young solo, which would be very clear, you know. There wasn't a lot of fast stuff in there that, that would... It, people could learn it and learn to sing it. You could sing these solos and, and learn the rhythm and, and phrasing of jazz. So, so we all learned a Lester Young solo. I had to learn it, too. Two choruses of Lady Be Good, yeah. And I think that's just a, a great way to learn music. I think that's how I've always learned music, and, and all, the, all the people I know that play jazz have learned to internalize it that way. But, uh, yeah, who did I copy? I copied, at one point, all the players that I loved. It's on guitar, especially Jim Hall, um, learning about jazz from, from his point of view. I tried to copy Wes Montgomery, but it was too hard. And uh, and then really copying Jim Hall turned out to be too hard because he was Jim Hall, and, and uh, copying anybody, like I said, is too hard. But um, also blues guitar. I, I, I early on loved B.B. King, especially. What, what do you think of the concept of a person that plays an instrument is that's their personality? And, and this question just popped into my mind as we were talking about Lester Young, because Lester Young has this beautiful, beautiful uh, melodic phrasing. But if you listen to uh, interviews with him, he's kind of gruff, and he has this this jive language yeah. that's that doesn't seem to match uh, in the same realm or the same beauty as his his ballad playing, for instance. Yeah. Do you find that? You're well, the same yeah, way? no, I think music is different from, you know, it's like. That goes back to, you know, uh, what does this song sound like? You know, what, you know, because classical music, they would write, you know, the Moonlight Sonata, which is about moonlight. Not really, right? Music's not really a reflection of our personality. Maybe it's a, uh, somehow related. You know, we can find something like, oh, that guy's a nice guy, and there's a certain humanity in his playing. Or... 
that guy's a tough mother and listen to that. Wow, that is some tough music. I'm sure there are things like that. But I think music pretty much exists in its own little area, you know? And if you love music, then you try to pull things out that you love. And uh, it doesn't necessarily reflect your personality. I think when you hear some body play that you really love the way they play you think well this person must be interesting because the music is I mean, are, are great in some way you know because their music is but it's not always the way you think you know i i learned that early on <laughs> well let's talk about I, I think one of your earliest uh road experiences with vibraphone is gary burton and he was kind of acted like a mentor for any uh young berkeley students go out on the road. Yeah, absolutely. I started, uh, when I went to Berkeley the first year, I went there, and, and I was I was not a wonderkind by any means, but my first year out of high school, I was really, I hadn't really hung out with any jazz musicians, and so I was really uh, a beginner at jazz, and that first year, I was getting it together. The second year, Gary Burton came to teach at Berkeley, and I had been a big fan of the Gary Burton Quartet which was in the late 60s, was this very influential band in jazz and, and well-known and great for guitar players because he had uh, a string of great guitar players. First, Larry Coryell, then uh, Jerry Hahn, who was a great guitarist, and then Sam Brown, another uh, unsung hero of the guitar. And, um, and I had, had heard his band live at, in high school and was way into it and had their records. Uh, so he came, he was a jazz star, and he came to teach at Berkeley. And uh, I roomed with, with uh, two other guys, a drummer and a bass player, and we had an apartment on Hemingway Street, and we had a set of vibes there. So the drummer was really good, Ted Siebes, and he, and he was uh, one of the best drummers in school. So at one point, he invited Gary over to jam, in our little apartment, which was just across the street. So Gary came over, and he saw that, well, there's a guitar player, a bass player, and a good drummer, and a set of vibes. I can hang out there until rush hour's over, which was, you know, he got through teaching at 5, and their traffic was so terrible until 6.30 that he would come over almost every day and jam with us, and I learned so much. He really was a mentor to me. Uh, let's talk about another mentor, another opportunity your your years with miles davis oh yeah well you know my other mentor was there in boston we'll talk about miles for sure but the other guy gary burton then got uh steve swallow to come to berkeley to uh to give lessons at berkeley and steve was living in california and uh, i met steve and we really became friends he was the first uh really great musician who really took an interest in me and we became friends. Well, he and Gary. But with, with Steve, I still play with him to this day. And he, he was a, a real influence on me as a person, as a guitarist, and as a, a, a composer. Yeah. Let's, let's move to Miles now. What I understand was when Miles was looking for a new young musician, he would have somebody to call. For instance, I know he used to call Dave Liebman all the time for who's the next tenor player coming up. Did that happen with you as well? Yeah, I think Miles, just like everybody, you know, talks to the musicians he knows and is looking for young, you know, and musicians talk about who can play. And uh, Miles wanted another guitar player for his band, an additional guitar player. 
And uh, Bill Evans, uh, the saxophonist, recommended me. Uh, I think it was pretty much Bill. But I knew the other guys, Marcus Miller and Al Foster. I played with them in New York. And, uh, yeah. Now, Miles had also come here, come to hear me with Dave Liebman's band. But that had been like a year or two years before he put his band together. So I'm not sure if he remembered that who I was. Was that, from that. his group Lookout Farm? Huh? Was that his group Lookout Farm? No, I wasn't in Lookout Farm. This was the Dave Lieben Quintet. What can you tell us about Miles? I mean, I can, I can well, needle you here, but... What uh, can I tell you? Did you have Miles conversations who? with no. Miles? <laughs> uh, Did you, do you have a Miles, free conversation? I played in Miles' band for three years and, and uh, hung with him a bunch. You know, I mean, he was... Uh, what can I tell you about Miles? Miles was my uh, Miles was the biggest thing going in jazz at the time, and uh, I still consider him uh, one of the most you know greatest musicians of all time for sure. Um, the most influential. I just loved his music. You know, I from the beginning when I heard him and his groups and all the guys who played it, I was you know. Uh, and so getting to hang out with him was wonderful and getting to uh, kind of pick his brain a little bit, um, you know, and just hear what he had to say about music. Because, it, you know, everybody should check it out uh, where he started. I mean, he started with Charlie Parker, you know, the, the, in, in, when they were putting that music together in the 40s as a, as a youngster. And he played really well then. And then he went all the way through and, until he played with us in the 80s, into the 90s, and then he died. But uh, what, a, what a stretch, boy. Talk about different periods. It seems like, you know, uh, that when you think back to 1946, and, the, you know, it seems like a real different time. But uh, to, to meet somebody who had that kind of scope, but, and to meet Miles, you know, who, who was incredibly... Uh, forward thinking uh, about art, period. You know, and he, he uh, we talked about, he talked about psyching himself up for stuff, how to approach it, about improvisation, about uh, how to, s trying to stay fresh and to, to, what he considered good, you know, and uh, when you were playing and really improvising and really doing something and really in the, in the groove, you know, as a verse to, to you know, playing some stuff you played before. You know, really, he, he was way into that. And I think all those guys, the jazz generation, the great jazz people, uh, thought about that and, and were really in touch with that kind of creativity and in-the-moment uh, playing, you know, which has been uh, such a lesson for me. Well, backstage, we were talking about Duke Ellington and how he used to piece his music together based around what he heard in his band. Did Miles come in with fully formed music or was no, it? That's, no, it was really loose. It was very much like that, that uh, he would use this and that from, from uh, the musicians that were playing. And he, he talked about, you know, using the group and having the group be organic. Although he completely ran the show, he knew how each guy played and would use our strengths in putting the music together. And uh, I think it was... Now I realize that, that some of that may have really been coming from Duke or from this, you know, overall understanding of, uh, 
of this music, you know, that it's different from being a composer and writing for an orchestra. And it comes out differently with these people playing this kind of music that's improvised and how great it is, how great spontaneity and, and subconscious playing can be, you know, and uh, how those ideas are so uh, uh, strong, you know, compared to what happens when you really think about it and write it out, you know, that there's a, something else going on that's really fantastic. You're listening to WLIW Radio, 88.3 FM in Southampton, New York, a wonderful station that you can also hear online at WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station. Did he ever actually tell you what to play? No, he told me what not to do, which was was really um, great because I think, I remember thinking back at the time, Miles doesn't know what he's going to do. He knows what he doesn't want to do. And he would tell, <laughs> he would tell you, and he could, Miles could get away with telling you, you know, what, what not to do. Don't do that again. <laughs> um, what did you learn from Miles when you became a band leader? Um, it, I always thought the guys who tried to act like Miles uh, with their band were in big trouble, <laughs> you know, because Miles could get away with this because he was Miles, you know, and we all idolized him. And uh, I couldn't treat people like that, you know. <laughs> I, they would leave. Uh, and I didn't want that. I wanted everybody to stay. But what I was, you know, what I just mentioned about spontaneity and creativity and getting things to work, uh, I learned so much from Miles and from all the the good guys, you know, who, who really play have this loser attitude because then the music comes out better. I really think that's true. And I didn't know till I read that same Duke Ellington uh, uh, biography that you and I just talked about how how kind of loose with it Duke was, and that oh okay that's why it was uh, you know changing at the last minute, just going on instinct. It's so important. Um, you've worked with so many great people after after Miles. I'd, I'd just like to talk about a couple. Uh, uh, your work with Jaco Pastorius. Yeah, um, I was lucky to. I, I consider him one of the greats. You know, uh, even though he didn't have as uh, long a, a run. Um, and you know, I didn't really work with Jaco much when I was going to up in Boston. I met Pat Metheny. And we became friends, and Pat told me, you know, there's this guy in Miami who, uh, I swear to God, he's the best bass player I've ever heard. And um, Pat wasn't given to, to big, uh, you know, uh, exaggerations like that, because nobody's ever the best on any instrument, you know? There's always somebody else. But Pat said, you know, I know it sounds weird, but this guy is. And, uh, and then Pat also said, only problem is he can really be a jerk. And so uh, then when I met Jocko, uh, actually first I heard Jocko's album that he made, his solo record, before I ever met, it, met him, and it blew me away. I, 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 you know, I just I couldn't believe how great he was. And just his sound on a string instrument, you know, really influenced me as a guitar player. And, uh, 
And then I met him. And, you know, he would come up to you and say, you know what? I'm the best bass player in the world. And, and what, you know, what a, you'd say, what an asshole, you know? But then he would play, and you'd say, oh, man, he, I think he's right. <laughs> and it wasn't just chops, you know? It wasn't just anything like that. No, it was musicality and just playing the instrument in this whole different way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't get to play with him much. Mostly Mike Stern played with him. And uh, they, they put together this video one day where they needed some musicians to play with Jocko. And I played, uh, and Kenwood Denard played. And that, that has become well-known on YouTube, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, it was just a few times with Jocko. I wish it had been more. All of a sudden, he was gone, you know. Now, your recording career spans... I don't know how many years, 30 years, maybe, maybe well, more. Let's, let's figure this out. It'll be 40 years this year. Wait, what year is it? Yeah, November. It'll be 40 years since I made my first recording. And the thing that's interesting with you is you go through different periods, different styles. There's maybe a, a hard bop period with with being a sideman, but then getting into the fusion thing with uh, uh, your your trios, and then moving to Verve, uh, uh, then moving to Blue Note, doing the the group with Lovano, and then doing a solo or a, the Quiet album with acoustic guitar, and then doing your Piety Street, and then uh, your Uber Jam stuff. It, it it just seems like you're you're almost it's exhausting. <laughs> You're reinventing yourself time after time after time. Is that uh, intrinsic of the record business? And it's like you. Well, have I to think create- I think that's a good point. Um, you know, Charlie Parker's career was pretty short with that incredible music that he made. You know, and he he, uh, he made those small group records and and get, but you know what within. Ten years, he was gone, you know, and he made Bird with Strings, which was, for him, a big departure. But um, I've been around for 40 years, so I, yeah, in order to make another record, if you have a record deal, they say, well, what are you going to do next? And I'm like, huh. So I've been able to explore a lot of stuff that I like uh, in different areas. Um, and I think the the fact that not only record companies, but promoters want you to come back, but they want you with a different group, you know, has, has kind of, uh, you know, made me have different uh, uh, projects. But I, I really think it's been great uh, because each one kind of informs the other. I'll learn something. I mean, you know, the Piety Street record, we decided to do go- all gospel tunes. Now, I'm not, I'm, no, uh, I'm not a religious person. You know, I just love that music. Uh, so I learned all this music for that, you know, because it's like R&B, but uh, coming, maybe it's the, the, the grandparent of R&B is got, uh, black traditional gospel music. And uh, um, so I learned a lot from that, you know. And uh, when I did Quiet, I wanted to do a record with, a, uh, with horns and, and write more orchestral music. And uh, so I really had to, to work on that because I didn't know how to do it and uh, that sort of thing. And then I always wanted to explore kind of, you know, funk and, uh, and that kind of music because it seemed like kind of an open area. You know, a lot of people hadn't worked in that area as much. So, um, 
Yeah, putting together the Uber Jam records and then playing with MMW. Uh, uh, it brought me out of sight of my own box.
play with uh, Phil Lesh from The Grateful Dead, do you find that your audience becomes even broader? Do you find that those people go back and listen to uh, other I don't Schofield know. records? I don't know if the deadheads come to hear me. I don't know. I keep looking for them, you know, because you know when they're there. I, uh, I, I talked to Bruce Hornsby once, who had played in The Dead, you know, and it, Bruce is, has his own... Uh, thing and he said you know those deadheads come to my show and they won't leave until i do a grateful dead song he said they won't leave the room you know and uh, that hasn't happened to me <laughs> until today <laughs> all right uh, well, i'll oh. do it if yeah if they hold you captive yeah hey, let me ask you a, a conceptual question what do you think of when you play music now do you are you uh you know we talked about last week with chris potter uh learning all the theory and learning to master your instrument and then forget about everything. Are you in that state as well? Yeah, I try to forget about it. I think, um, actually, you know, we do, we are thinking when we're playing. Uh, it's not like you go to some Zen state, you know, alpha state where you're no longer thinking, you're just in the moment completely. Um, your mind is still thinking, you know, when you need it, you might actually think, okay, uh, Lydian's, you know, sharp five, whatever. But mainly, you get past that and internalize the music so you're singing with your instrument, you know? And when you sing, occasionally you'll think, oh, okay, I have to hit a perfect fourth here. Maybe you think that, I don't know. But more than anything, you can do it by ear. And that's that's what I'm doing. It's not like your mind's not working, though. I'm, I'm trying to, when I improvise and play the guitar, I'm trying to let one idea follow the next, just like when we're talking right now. When I talk to you, it's sometimes it's one word at a time in order to give an idea. But more often, it's a, a sentence. Sometimes maybe a paragraph will be a whole idea. And it's the same thing when I'm playing. You know, I, I just... All we can do is play what's coming through our mind, you know, sing along with the band, you know, that melody that's coming through you, that's your line, and you just have to play it. Even though, even though there are a lot of different options, I pretty much just stay with, it turns out it's okay to just follow your uh, instinctual melody that's going in your head. And sure, I'll, I'll sometimes think, oh, there's that hot thing I wanted to play, maybe that would work here, and I'll jam it in. Don't do that as much as I used to. When I listen to my earlier stuff, a lot of times I can hear myself playing like that, and I don't like that. You ever listen to yourself back and, and um, think, that's not what I sounded like when I play? Yeah. Well, that's, the, you're, that's always the initial thing. So what? Uh, is that what just happened? But I think we can't really hear ourselves, you know? I don't think we can really... You, can, you, can, you know when it's happening and when it's not pretty much. But you can't, you know, after one listen, I can't listen to a performance anymore to, well, I better, if I really listen, I'll know if this is any good, uh -uh, you know, and, and, and I hate that in myself when I analyze myself. It's like too uh, egocentric, and uh, I think we all do it, but I prefer just playing and listening to music and trying to learn. That seems to be when I'm in a better frame of mind. The other thing of self-analysis, uh, it's rough. Uh, we're just about out of time, but... Uh, really? You... God damn, it went quick. <laughs> I love to talk about myself, I guess. That's the truth. <laughs> I, I, I know there's a lot of uh, guitarists, uh, people listening that would like to know 
some words of wisdom. What, what can you offer them? What have you learned in your life? Huh. Dave, what have I learned in life? Well, what do they say? Uh, there's a great story that came from Steve Swallow, but I think it was from Jim Hall. And when, uh, so this is one of those jazz stories that's gone through the, you know, through the telephone game. So it might not be accurate, but he asked, Jim Hall asked Freddie Green if he had any tips. Freddie Green, the great guitarist of Count Basie. And Freddie Green said, always pack your suit last. Always pack your jacket on the yeah. top. Uh, yeah, on the top, because that's what you're going to get out first to go to the next gig, you know. But this is from a day when bands had band uniforms. It was much easier. Uh, you knew what to wear, you know. Now you guys have to think, oh, my God, dark colors, stripes, what? But back then, you know, you just wore the band uniform and you packed it on top. And that's, uh, there's some depth to that, you know. That's about <laughs> as heavy as it gets. No, I know. You know... I have no idea what to say, you know, uh, about any of this stuff. Uh, well, practice makes perfect. I know you knew that, right? But it's true. You got to practice. If I, if you were Miles and I asked that question, what would he have said? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> John Schofield, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, NYU Jazz Interviews Series. Thank you for the producers who put this together: Joseph Villa, Ed Barada. Shake Up Productions, made possible by a gift from Selma Geller. Some is Selma Geller. Thanks, Silvana Monasterius, for our theme music, which comes from his tune, Tropical Mirage. Thank you, Fernando uh, Valaderos, for helping us pick the music. And this is outstanding music that we get to hear from these various jazz musicians. And thank you, in particular, Rafael Alvarez, for all the great work you do in post-production and in putting this together for us. Thank you, Cleus Brondahl, our music director of the Jam Session and the Jam Session Radio Hour. Please join us again next Sunday night at 8 o'clock. Enjoy yourselves. I know you can. Uh, we thank you again for being with us. Take good care and catch you next time on the Jam Session Radio Hour. ¶¶